Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture is Matthew 21, 1 through 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came <clears throat> to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. All right, thank you. Hey, good morning. Everybody good? Warmed up? Okay. It's going to be cold and rainy all day. Let's just hang out here. I got a lot of material. Um, Okay. So, um, last week, um, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and there was two interactions. There was, um, there was some disciples who wanted to be in positions of power and authority. Jesus rebukes them. There are some um, beggars who were blind, and, and, and um, they're outside, they're on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus, after rebuking those who wanted power, comes to these blind, these blind men who just simply wanted to be made whole, and he heals them, and they become disciples of his. So it's almost like, um, there's almost like a replacement of disciples, but there's not. That didn't happen, but this is sort of like the, the feeling that you're supposed to get. Like, um, the disciples who thought they had it figured out are being sort of like pushed aside, and the ones who knew nothing but wanted wholeness are being brought in. Now, as we go through today's sermon... I want you to remember something. The blind men are outside the city. They're on the road. Remember that. I don't have it in my notes, and I'm telling you, because I may not remember to bring this back up again. However, I think if you ponder that later on in this sermon, uh, it will mean something to you, and you will think it's quite beautiful that Jesus comes to them outside the city. So, with all that said, I'm going to open us up in order of prayer, and we're going to cover two, two events today. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and his cleansing of the temple. Um, What Matthew does here is nothing short of amazing and brilliant and stunning and offensive to a lot of people in their day, okay? So I love it. So um, 
We are going to uh, pray and let's jump into this, shall we? Father, we come here to you and uh, we gather as your people. We ask for wisdom. Uh, We ask for knowledge and understanding. Um, I ask that you would open our eyes to things we haven't seen. Give us um, a newness of heart, a newness of spirit. I ask that uh, you would reveal to us some places in our life that, that you are not yet Lord um, where we are trusting in things that we ought not to be trusting in, um, where we have rejected your kingship. And I ask that you would help us to rightfully repent today and, and, uh, and give us a, a new understanding of what it means to be your followers, what it means for you to be king, um, and, and live as, as if Jesus is king in the midst of these earthly kingdoms. And so give us a new view, give us hope, um, give us comfort, Whoever is in need of comfort, bring healing to those in need of healing. Um, mend the things that are broken uh, in our midst. In your name, amen. Okay, so, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. That's what's happening right now. And I may be whispering by the time we're done. Here we go. Um, so, Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. Now, um, let me give you some facts about Jerusalem. And, uh, and I think you'll find them helpful to understand in this passage what exactly is happening. Um, Jerusalem had an average population for most of the year of about 40,000 people. During the week of the Passover, that 40,000 people, uh, and there was a Jewish population, that 40,000 people would swell to about 200,000 people. So five times its regular population um, of Jewish people would swarm the city of Jerusalem. It was um, <clears throat> the place where all Jewish people wanted to go all the time. They wanted to live there. They wanted to be there. They would travel for days for weeks and they would come to be there on the Passover because on the Passover is when they would celebrate um, shortly after the Day of Atonement where the the sacrifices would be offered in the temple and the people would be sort of reconciled with God. There'd be two lambs. One would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. One of them would be uh, the hand of the priest would rest on the head of what's called the Azazel lamb and the, 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 the sins of the people would be sort of announced over this lamb and he would be let out literally carrying away the sins of the world right um later to be pushed off a cliff in the desert so he wouldn't come back um short known uh, little known fact um now as all of this is happening the people the jewish people there um mind you the entire city is now just jewish people an overwhelming abundance of two hundred thousand jewish people and while they're there they begin to have this swelling in their hearts of like This must be what it was like when King David ruled. This must be what it was like when all of Israel was just our people. They were very nationalistic, as everyone was and as a lot of people today still are. And and they had this dream and this vision that one day all of Jerusalem would be as it was with just Jewish people in the city, no Gentiles, and... Um, they would have their king, their Davidic king on the throne, their Jewish king. They would have their temple in full swing, offering the sacrifices, and there they would be God's people. And this is the passion that they had. This is what they wanted. This is what they desired. And so imagine on the week of Passover, every single year, all these Jewish people are getting together and they are very passionate people. Um, and their pride would be stirred and they'd be a pic- they would start to have this picture in their mind of, this is what it's going to be like. This is, this is exactly what it's going to be like, and it's going to be amazing. One day, this celebration will, it will be like this year round. Us here, no Gentiles, no, no others here with us, right? Um, and so as this is happening, what tends to happen, uh, we know from 
lots of writings in ancient history, that the Jewish people would get a little too rowdy and a little too excited. They'd be dancing and singing and drinking and, and oftentimes a riot would break out because not only are they a passionate people about their future, they are also an oppressed people. And they are a people who, on the Passover, are celebrating their liberation from Egypt. When God came and, and, and drove away their oppressors and set them free so they could go out and they could be on their own in their own lands um, without the boot of the empire on their neck. And in the first century, the year this happened, they find themselves celebrating the Passover under Roman Empire rule with the boot of the empire on their neck and being oppressed and held down. And uh, the, uh, the emperor is demanding that they pay taxes that they don't want to pay. They don't feel right. They don't feel like they should have to pay these taxes. Um, the Roman soldiers oftentimes enter into their cities and defile their cities. Um, and as they get together and they picture this world that they would like to have, this nationalistic world that they want to have, this city that they want to build, um, oftentimes it erupts into riots. And this would happen all the time. Um, so there was a local governor from the Roman Empire that would be assigned to be over the city of Jerusalem at all times. And all through Jerusalem's history, they always had a Roman governor who was over the city of Jerusalem. Um, The year Jesus visited, um, this particular year we're reading about, there was a man named Pilate who was the Roman governor. Um, We know a lot about Pilate. We have a lot of um, inscriptions about him, a lot of ancient writings about this guy, a real person, a real character. Here's some uh, ancient writings, inscriptions. This one up top says Tiberius Pontius Pilate, Prefects, that was a position he held then. Over here, we have some coins that were struck with Pilate's insignia on it. And over here, we actually have Pilate's actual insignia ring that he wore. Um, all of this stuff has been found. Um, we know a lot about this guy. Uh, we know that he lived most of his year um, in a beach house on the coast of Caesarea. All right? Like a nice, a nice beach house. And he did not like the Jewish people at all. He was regularly... Um, hoping that they would riot so that he could slaughter them. Um, But he had been in charge with uh, keeping the peace in Jerusalem. That was his job. Um, And so every year on the Passover, um, this guy Pilate gathers all his um, elite soldiers and then an army of Roman soldiers behind them. And they parade through the city of Jerusalem on horses and chariots in a great display of force. And for the time of the Passover, um, they would move into the Antonia Fortress, which was connected to the temple. They had built it on, on site of the temple. And the Romans would sort of rule over Jerusalem from their own temple. The offense that the Jewish people took to this was huge. Eventually, the Jewish people would riot. Um, Matthew's audience that Matthew was writing to um, are likely the generation that saw the fall of the temple when the Jewish people got stirred up and they rioted and tried to throw, overthrow Rome and the whole temple was destroyed and burned down in the year 70. Um, but in the year Jesus was coming to visit, Pilate is doing what he does every year. He parades his army through the city on a huge display of force so that everyone can see um, that Rome is stronger than them and they would be reminded who their actual king really is. And that there would be no funny business, no ideas of like, hey, we should riot, we should overthrow the Roman Empire. He was there to keep the peace. Anyone who stepped out of line would be run through with the sword and killed. So, um, this is what is happening 
on this side of the city. There's a lot of work has been done in this. There's, a, um, there's two historians, Christian historians, um, John Dominic Cross and Marcus Borg, who wrote a book about the last week of, of Jesus' life. And they write a lot of these details. Um, he writes about cavalry on, horse, a cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, the sun glinting on metal and gold, the sound of marching feet, of crinking of leather, the clinking of, of bridles, and the beating of drums. This was a spectacle to drive fear into the hearts of the Jewish people so that they would know their place. Okay? This happened every year on the first day of the Passover. This happened the year that Jesus went. It happened every single year. Now, um, Pilate came in from the west, always. He always came in from the west side. Um, Jesus um, is traveling in from the north. And Jesus approaches the Mount of Olives. And as Jesus approaches the Mount of Olives, you can stand there and you can see the city and you can see what's happening there in this city. Okay, are you with me? You got the picture now? Jesus crests the top of the hill with his disciples and can see the city bustling with people, Roman soldiers on display, probably in a triumphal parade through the city. Now, here we go. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them uh, he will send them right away. So, Jesus stops on the Mount of Olives, and he hatches a plan. Okay, this is premeditated. Okay, he says, here's what I want you to do. And they're all like probably watching this happen. He says, I, I want you to go uh, down here in this little town. There's going to be a, a donkey tied up and a colt. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and I want you to take those, the donkey and the colt. And if someone comes to you and says, hey, what are you doing? You're taking my donkey and my colt. And like, it's all right. The Lord wants him. Cool. All right. Um, and they do. And they bring him. Okay, apparently there's a gentleman's agreement already or whatever. Um, And they bring them back, okay? And then some things happen. Uh, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So first off, we have a donkey and a colt. I want to explain this. This is one of my favorite things to do in like New Testament interpretation is like ask random questions like, why a donkey and a colt and which one did he sit on? Um, Now, Mark, the gospel of Mark was written first. Mark says it's a donkey. The Gospel of Luke was written several decades later. It's written second. Luke says, nah, it's a cult. I remember it being a cult. All right? Uh, for the, the people that I talked to, this is what we got. Um, Matthew writes after Luke, and he's like, donkey or cult? I don't know. A donkey and a cult <laughs> are who, are what they brought. He's like, I will not be wrong this time. Okay? A donkey and a cult. We don't know which one. I trust Mark. I think it was a donkey. I think it's, uh, it makes a better statement too. A donkey? Really? Awesome. Um, now, uh, and they decorate this donkey. I'm going to go with that. They decorate this donkey with their cloaks. Now, if you've been here long enough, you know people didn't have a lot of possessions back then. You had an undergarment, a tunic, and you had a cloak on the outside, which was like the flashy colorful one. If you wanted to like stand out in a crowd, you wore like a red one or a yellow, whatever. Um, and that's what you had. And they are taking off their cloaks and they are decorating a donkey... Because Jesus says, we're going to have a bit of a parade ourselves, all right? You see all this going on? We're going to have one ourselves. We go a little farther here in verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Who are these people? Um, Jesus had a lot of disciples. He had a 12-person a, a inner circle um, sort of group of disciples that were meant to represent the unification of the tribes of Israel. And then outside of that, he had 
uh, 72 disciples. And then outside that, he had about 500 disciples. And several times when Jesus speaks, about 5,000 people show up, all right? He's got followers, all right? Um, and he, uh, he's got followers. These are his disciples there, all right? And he sends them all ahead. They go running ahead into the street. They know the drill in Jerusalem. They know what Pilate does. They know all about it. And so you got to have direct decorations if you're going to have a parade. So they take off their, their, their cloaks and they lay them on the road and they cut branches and they lay them all over the street and they decorate the north entrance to Jerusalem, um, not far from the west entrance where Pilate is doing his thing. These guys are like, it's parade time, our parade, here we go. Um, and the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. We have like an Aladdin moment. Like, who is this guy traveling? And the, the people are like, hey, yeah. And they're going to yell out who it is. He got like, um, the whole city was stirred. Who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Like they're telling the people, that's who we got. All right. Pay no mind to the, to the parade at the Western Wall. Follow us. We got, we've got a real king here, Jesus of Nazareth. And they are having their own triumphal procession, their own sort of parade of the king. All right? Um, now, if you're paying attention to what's going on here, if you understand what is happening here, this is a countermarch. This is a protest. That is exactly what is happening. Um, I sometimes hear and read and see people talking about, um, um, you know, don't make, don't, Jesus wasn't political, don't make Jesus, Jesus was the most political person, like, in his day, all right? This, there is a parade, a military parade. This is what is happening. There is a military parade happening. And Jesus throws another parade in protest, in mockery of the power that they believe that they weld. This is what Jesus is doing. He says, I, I, I see you parading your weapons and your soldiers, attempting to display power for your enemies and your people, attempting to use fear and intimidation to somehow bring salvation to your people. Like you're going to use these weapons to somehow save the world and bring salvation to the people. And I laugh at you. And I will bring salvation to the world. You know how I'm going to do it? I see your guy on a horse. Bring me a donkey. I don't need all that. Bring me a donkey and we're going to decorate it not with shiny golden stuff. The people are going to give what little they have to support this thing. Like we don't need to instill fear into people. I mean, this is the dichotomy, the contrast that Jesus is building because the crowds that were gathered around Pilate's um, triumphal procession, um, they paid taxes and they gave to support. They paid for this procession out of their own pockets, out of blunt fear of being run through with the sword or shot with an arrow or stabbed with a spear or being beaten by a soldier. This is why they gave to provide for this triumphal procession. Jesus' followers had no fear of Jesus. They had only love for their king who humbled himself to become like them, to ride a donkey in the same way that they do because they're poor and they're oppressed. And when this happens, when they have love and acceptance um, beautifully poured out upon them and they are made whole again by this love, by their new king, what happens is people tend, when they really feel loved, they tend to give out of their love. They tend to provide um, for others out of the goodness of their heart because I have been loved and I will respond in love. And so Jesus' entire entourage begins taking what little they have 
and using it to show honor to the king who, who has shown them such intense love. This, brothers and sisters, is, is how Jesus displays his power. It is through a, a humbling of himself. When you hear world leaders talking about military parades and we need a great show of strength and everyone's going to be in awe of our weaponry, Jesus is, is he's probably a little saddened. He's, he's probably a little bit laughing like you think that's power. Um, and meanwhile, on the other side of town in the poorest hovels of our cities, um, Jesus is there reigning as king and providing for people in the way that he does and saying, you can reject that. That is that is laughable that they would think that somehow that's going to bring anything of goodness in the world. This is how you bring goodness. A cross, a donkey, um, a towel to wash the feet of the people around you. This is how the kingdom of God will function. And what the people begin to see is that their king, you know, we follow and we are the disciples of people that we want to be like and their, their lives look so amazing and great and they write books and we eat these books up. We love them and we try all the things that they say to do and try to be just like them. But the fact is you can't be like them. You don't even really know them. What you think you know about them, you don't really know. Um, you know exactly what they want you to know about them. You cannot really be like them. And you are their disciple and you're trying so hard and it can't really be grasped and you'll fork out more and more money and more and more attention upon them and you're giving them exactly what they want. And then Jesus, God incarnate in the flesh says, you can be like me and I will show you by becoming like you and lower myself to where you are and let you walk with me in my parade. This is how the kingdom of God is built. The followers of Jesus did things wildly differently. They saw the world through a completely different lens. They did not, um, they, they were not stirred by fear. No fear at all. What, what they were stirred by was absolute love. Um, most of the things that you do, the ways you interact with government, the ways you interact with whatever, with laws of this world and, and jobs and all that, uh, is done out of fear. If I don't do this, um, this will happen to me. I'll be excommunicated. I'll be kicked out. I'll lose my place in the community. I'll get fired. I'll end up in prison. It's all done out of fear. Jesus does not rule out of fear. That is not how the kingdom of God in the end will function. Um, he is not punitive. He is restorative. And he is making the world in this manner. Which is why John in his old age, the Apostle John, um, living in Ephesus, living a hard life of serving Jesus and growing the church. In his old age, he writes this, in this way, love has been perfected among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. For in this world, we are just like him. You hear that? Like, oh, I can be confident that like when I stand before God, that I will be loved and accepted. And the reason I know is because he actually stooped to my level to show me who I could be. Um, in this world, we are just like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. There is no reason to have the fear for Jesus that the people had for Pilate. And this is what causes people to actually willingly give their life for their king. Now, that is the first story. Two parades going on in the city at the same time. So Jesus enters in from the north and he has a destination. He's not just going into the city to make a scene. He's, he's going straight to the temple on a mission to change something. And here we go. Let's go a little farther here. 
Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, to understand what is happening here, there are several things you need to understand about how the temple functioned in the first century. Um, uh, This is where the people offered the sacrifices, like we've talked about, like you probably understand. Um, However... All of these Jewish tourists coming here for Passover um, are traveling a very long ways. Many of them, some days, some of them three weeks or so that it takes to get here. And when they get there, they are to offer a sacrifice depending on their income level. There's like a a progressive temple tax rate. Like like if you don't have much money, you're going to offer two doves. If you have a little more, you're going to offer this and then offer this. Um, So... They come and they're going to travel three weeks. You're not going to travel three weeks with animals that you're pretty sure are perfect and unblemished um, because the fact is they could become blemished while you're traveling for three weeks and it's a very difficult journey, some over mountaintops and and cliffs and rocks. Um, Second, you could show up with your animal to the temple and the priest is going to pick it up and be like, ah, blemish. Look at there. Oh, I didn't see that. I can't sacrifice this animal now. And so... What people did is they didn't travel with their animals. They went to the temple courtyards and they would buy animals that were already USDA certified, uh, unblemished, um, in the courtyard. And they would buy these animals and they would take it, walk it 10 feet, give it to the priests who would instantly kill it and sacrifice it. Now, um, the only problem is you're coming from other parts of the country and you have Roman money. Roman money has craven images on it. So you can't actually enter into the temple with Roman money. And so they're like, ah, I can't, I can't accept that money. That money's impure, unclean. You need to go over to the money changers. Like, Ugh. Other line. You walk up, you're like, this is the line? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay. Now, um, you get on the line and you have to go and you have to exchange the Roman money in a certain location before you actually walk through the gates. You have to, you have to exchange the, the Roman money for approved kosher Jewish money that would work in the temple um, with different uh, insignias. Now, uh, so this, this coin on the bottom here, this is front and back. Um, this was found about five or six months ago by a nine-year-old girl in the desert. Like, that's my dream. To be walking through, just, ah, I found a, okay, 2,000-year-old temple coin, okay? Now, so, um, this is what you had to use. So, For the sacrifices to happen, there had to be money changers and people selling animals and all this stuff. And it was all, it was all highly centered around purity. That animal had to be pure. Your money has to be pure. When you're entering, you have to be pure. Um, Lots and lots of purity rules. Jesus walks into the temple and flips the tables of these money changers and opens the gates and, 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 and sets the animals into chaos and, and makes a huge ruckus in the temple. And the question you have is, why would he do that? Okay, what purpose does this serve? Okay, I'm going to pause here. And I'm going to give you even a little more information because it's really important. Okay, now, try to hold on to that. Right now, we're going to go back in time, 1,800 years before this day. And this is all going to come together. I sure hope. So, how did Jerusalem become Jerusalem? Well, Originally, there was a, ta- a city there called Salem. And it was a city that was on the top of a hill, uh, a top of a, uh, with, with giant cliffs on the side of it. It had impenetrable walls. It was massive. Um, King David marches up to Salem with the Israelites, and he says, 
This city is about to be ours. We're going to conquer this city. Now, we're not going to discuss the ethics of this this morning. Now, he says, but we're going to conquer this city, and we're going to make it our city and kill all these people. Now, um, later. Um, so they come to this place, and this city has never been conquered. And the walls are thick, and the king is on top, and he's laughing at all these people. And he calls down, and the king says, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And so he takes the blind and the lame, and he lines the temple walls with them and puts like bows and arrows in their hands to mock David and his people. And he puts them on top of the, uh, uh, he's like, you're not going to get in here. Uh, here, these, they will stop you. I'm not worried. And the king like goes in and goes to bed. Now, um, David is fuming and he's mad. And they stay outside and they inspect this place and they come to realization that there is a, there is a spring of water that comes right up to the middle of the city. And it comes from a cave that they had stopped up. And so what they're going to do is they're going to unblock the cave so the water flows out and they're going to climb up the water shaft into the city under the cover of darkness. And he turns to his Israelite soldiers and he says to them, first one to stand on that wall becomes my general. And they do. Uh, this cave still exists. Um, you can go there, you can climb through this cave and you can see how Jerusalem was conquered. For some reason now it's called Warren's Shaft. I, I don't know who Warren is or what Warren did him to have this thing named after him, whatever. Um, I would call it David's or something like that, at least. Um, but anyways, they climb up this shaft, this, this water shaft into the city and they conquer the whole city and take it all over. David is still so mad about the, the blind and lame comment that he banishes blind and lame people from ever entering the city of Jerusalem. He says, none of them will ever enter this city. Who did Jesus run into outside the city? The blind man, both of them there begging. Why were they begging outside the city on the road to Jerusalem? Because they weren't allowed into the city. Because some king had a huge ego and got insulted. Which is how things go. Like, this is how it went. And, and they were never allowed into the city. Now, fast forward 1800 years again. Jesus walks into the temple, has a triumphal procession. These two guys, these blind guys, are now his followers. And they're walking into the city. They go right into the temple and he starts flipping tables and driving animals everywhere and brings all the sacrifices to a halt in the temple. Like it can't happen all of a sudden. Like everything stops probably for a few hours as they try to like, is this Roman or Jewish like coins? And then the animals are everywhere. This one's blemished now. What are you going to do? Um, and, and while this is happening, it says this, uh, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. With his procession has snuck in a whole bunch of blind and lame people into the temple. And Jesus sits down and begins healing the people who had been banished from the presence of God, from the worship of the people. All these people for 1,800 years had been banished from the, from the community of God because of no fault of their own. Or because of something that they had done to make themselves impure. They could no longer enter and worship with God's people in the holiest place in their entire religion. This is what we do. Purity. We, we care so much about things being perfectly pure. Did you know Jesus is called uh, constantly Yahweh God, Jesus, like uh, whatever part in the scripture you're in, how they're referring to God. Um, they, he's called the healer the savior, he's called the sanctifier, he's called the king, he's called the restorer. He's never once, God has never once called pure. Purity 
is about us and, and who can actually enter the temple, who, who, can, who can worship God. Jesus brings impure people first off into his entourage, marches them right into the most holiest place and sits them down and he stops all the sacrifices. He says, we're gonna pause all this and for two hours, for two hours that temple became what it was always supposed to be, a place of healing where the impure are not cast out, they are welcomed in and loved and healed and made whole again. And when you compare modern evangelicalism and the modern church with what this was in this day, we are them. When people are impure, when they go through something that they ought not to have gone, when they make a decision they ought not to have made, when there's something that is no fault of their own, we cast them out. We say, you are not pure. You can come in once these things are made right. You can enter in. And Jesus is entering in and he's flipping your chairs and he's interrupting your worship services like the prophet Amos. And he says, God is disgusted with your songs and your chants and your liturgy and your sacrifices. What he wants is healing and reconciliation. He wants you to feed the poor, welcome in the immigrants and free the oppressed. That is what God wants. Restoration. I have a friend I grew up with. Um, His dad worked for my dad. Um... And I was just, we were a bunch of like staff kids uh, in, at a, a Christian camp ministry thing. Um, and he grew up and he got a job as a pastor. And he got injured and so the doctor prescribed opiates and he was on opiates for a long time and got addicted. Couldn't get off. Long story short, he had to do some illegal things to get the opiates to, to, to meet the needs that his body was demanding. Um, and his house got raided by the FBI, and he got arrested, and he got fired from his church, and they shunned him, and they treated him like garbage and dirt, and were sending letters to his house and, and going, knocking on his door. Like, I talked to him, I talked to him like five months ago on the phone. We talked for like an hour and a half, and he was explaining the way his church was, was treating him. And he, he was just explaining how terrible it is, and he, 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 he's on the phone, and he's crying, and he says, Tommy, am I... Am I useless? Am I impure? Am I broken? I was like, absolutely not. I was like, this is, this is something you did. This is not who you are. This is, um, this is something that will be a part of your redemption story. It's, they should not be treating you like this, and you know that. He's got a wife. He's got a, uh, uh, like a three- or four-year-old boy, and, and they had uh, brand-new twins, a little boy and a little girl. Three weeks ago, he kills himself. This is what we do to people. When we care so much about their purity and living up to our religious propaganda, which is what it is. And Jesus is flipping tables in the temple saying, how dare you cast them out? What they need is healing. You bring them in. I don't care how uncomfortable it makes you feel. Shall we rip up the floorboards in your house and expose all the things that you have as well? Maybe we should. It's called confession and it puts us all on the same level playing field. But what we are doing is hurting people when we cast them out like this. And they end up making decisions that are irreversible and that destroy families and lives. And Jesus looks them all in the face. He says, you're just a den of robbers. You, you're, a, you're, a, you're just, 
You're a den of people who are hiding out together and pretending you're not like all these people outside the walls. And Jesus flips the tables and he marches in. He's like, he's like I, I am not a king like them demanding you live up to my standards and, and holding you, putting a spear in your face and holding fear up to your eyes and saying, you better live up to my standards or I will run you through with this fear. God doesn't rule from wrath. He just doesn't. The display that we have of Jesus on the cross is not punitive. It is restorative. He is pouring himself out. It is God pouring himself out, not demanding more. He's saying it's been done. I'm becoming like you so that you can see that you are welcome in my presence and so that together we can walk towards healing. When we care about people's purity over their healing, we hurt them. We cannot do this. Which is why we, we care for people holistically. Do they have enough food to eat? Are they taken care of? Are their light bills on? Do they need counseling? Do their children need to be watched so that they can go out and reconnect in their marriage? What do they need? How do we find it? How do we give it to them? That is the center of the whole thing. What we find in this passage is a totally different leader than anything we are given. Which is, why, which is why before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he stands there with his people and he says this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest one in the kingdom is the lowliest. The greatest king in the universe rode a donkey that was borrowed, rode a borrowed donkey decorated with the clothing of poor people. And so while you are enamored with the rich and the powerful leaders of the world and you're trying to earn their favor and you're trying to, you're trying to rub elbows and shoulders with them, on the other side of the city, in the hovels of the poorest places, um, Jesus is there ruling as king and inviting you to see it and to take part in it and to reject the show. Reject it. It is not what he is calling us to. We're going to take communion. Um, our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and, and spread around the room. And uh, as we take communion today, I want you to know, no matter how impure you feel, no matter how much you are hiding in your life, and you are terrified that people will find it out, and they will, know that that is not what defines you. You are a child of God, created by our cosmic king, given, created to be in a place of, uh, in, in an office and to have a vocation that just because you have fallen short um, doesn't mean that that offer is retracted. You are not separated from God. You might be estranged. You are not separated. He is with you, speaking in your ear, inviting you to put faith and have allegiance in a new king, Jesus, to reject your kings and to follow Jesus. Um who became like you so that you could see that you can become like him. We're going to pray. Um, The body of Christ is broken for you. The blood of Christ is poured out for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Matthew's stunning writings. May we continue to ponder them and, and, and pull more out of them and understand them. Help us to learn that healing is what you're after, not religion, You're after wholeness. 
And help us to be after that too. For ourselves, for others. Let us be your presence in the world. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.